Who am I? It's a question that has been asked for 6,000 years. And why am I here? The Bible confirms the message of the song, which is, I am yours. We read in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Children of God. I am yours. The verse that was started here said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his because he saved us. And he made us children of God. That's who I am. That's who I am. Is that who you are? He saved us so that we might accomplish his purposes, his plans that he prepared for us long ago. We've talked about this before, that God not only saved you from hell, he saved you from uh, eternal uh, damnation, but he also saved you for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them he has a plan for your life he has a work for you to do that's why i'm here that's why you're here otherwise the moment we got saved he would have just taken us home to be with him in heaven and i believe that as as christians all of us at some point or other have had a glimpse of what god wants us to do with our life he has he's given us some kind of a clue as to what he wants to accomplish through us. And the Lord often speaks to us in very subtle ways, sometimes more overt ways. Sometimes it's simply through the natural reading of the Scripture. We come across a verse and the Lord speaks to our heart and says, this is what I want you to do. Walk in it. At other times, he may reveal his plan to us in in another way. Sometimes a whole course of life is changed by somebody simply saying to another person, you know, I really think you'd be good working with children. I really think you would be good uh, in evangelism. I see that the Lord has blessed you in that. You know, the Lord could use you as a Bible teacher. I really believe that. And some simple passing word can change the course of a person's life. Someone might say, you know, I can see in you that you would really be a great encouragement to the other moms in the assembly here that you could teach them how to love their husbands, to love their children. This is something you should consider. might be a result of circumstances in our life. God has arranged our life in such a way that he places us in a situation that we have no choice but to make a decision to follow him. And uh, that calling is often very clear. You You may learn God's direction or his plans for your life by seeking counsel. Or it may be that God speaks to you through a message that is preached. But at some point in our lives, I believe that God calls us, God directs us, He opens up the uh, opportunity for us to go and to serve Him uh, in some capacity. It's a call, if you will, to service. And it may be that you've heard God's call to service. It may be that God has already clearly indicated to you what He wants you to do how he wants you to serve him. 
is that they are the works that he has prepared beforehand for you to uh, walk in. And perhaps you've um, already committed your life to serving the Lord. You've already said, Lord, I am yours. Here I am. Take me. Use me uh, for your glory. I think David did. You remember the occasion when David was taking care of his sheep. And Samuel came to his hometown that day. And uh, he, call, he looked at the others and said, this is not the man that God has anointed, that wants to anoint. And he called David in from the, the shepherd uh, fields. And there he anointed David uh, to be the next king. God anointed him, or Samuel anointed him with oil, told him of God's plan for his life. And so David had the unique uh, circumstance of having a clear word from the Lord of what God wanted him to do. He knew what God's will was for his life. That was the birth of God's plan or the birth of the vision of God's work in his life. And things went along just fine for David. If you know, remember the story, uh, he was called into Saul's presence. He made a good impression with Saul. Saul actually loved him, the scripture says. He killed a giant. He led a thousand warriors into battle. He married the king's daughter. That was the growth of the vision. He was well on his way to becoming the next king. At this point in his life, I think things were exciting. I think things were thrilling. I think he was enjoying the, the work of God in his life. Life was good. Things were swell. But things changed rather suddenly. And David experienced what has been termed the death of a vision. Some of you have heard that term before, the death of a vision. And over the next 10 years, as David flees from Saul, the dream or the plans that he believed God had for him, they seemed to crumble. Um, and he, the, the dream of being king seemed to fade into obscurity. This was the death of the vision. But David is not alone in this experience. Many men and women of God experience the same sort of uh, period in their life where they know what God is calling them to do. They've, they've, they're clear about the direction that God would have them take. And they've started, and it seems like an exciting time in their life. And then all of a sudden, things change. And they experience what we call the death of a vision. It seems like all of their hopes and all of their dreams and all of the aspirations that they had crumble and fall to pieces. Abraham had a promise. The promise was that he would have a son. And that son would be the... Um, he was ultimately named Isaac. And for 25 years, Abraham had to wait. Had to wait. But he ultimately had a son against all human possibility. Joseph had a word from the Lord as well. He was shown dreams that he would be exalted that he, his own family would bow before him. But he had a death of a vision too. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused and he was forgotten. Moses saved at birth to be a deliverer of God's people. Went from Pharaoh's courts out into the wilderness for 40 years. Backside of a desert. Many godly men and many godly women experienced the same thing. The Apostle Paul was, uh, was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And for 14 years, God sent him to the backside of the Arabian desert. God had a schooling for him too. And David, who would be king, wandered about being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Hebrew says of people like this, of whom the world is not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. In each case, it seemed like God had forgotten them. It seemed like the plans that God had for their life had fallen apart. It seemed like their whole vision had had, uh, disappeared. And uh, God tested these men for years. They suffered. They were afflicted. They were despised and rejected of men. And yet God still had a plan for their lives. What was really being tested here was their faith, their faith in God. It's easy to trust God when the sun is shining. It's easy to trust God when everything is going your way. It's easy when you have the plan in front of you. God has clearly told you what he wants you to do, and you're moving forward. It's easy to trust God at that time. But when there's a sudden change, when there's a calamity or something to stop us in our place, and it seems like the plan is actually rolling up backwards, do we have faith then? Do we have faith in God then? What happens when the plans for your life seem to fall apart and all your hopes and dreams and aspirations crumble? You may be left wondering, where is God? Why has He forsaken me? Where is God? You may go through deep trials of heart, but I want to encourage you this morning that God does not forsake His children. God does not forsake you. It has been my observation, and it has been my personal experience, that some of the most severe trials in life come right before the greatest blessings in life. So look for them if you're going through a trial. Look for them if you're hurting at this point. If you go through deep waters, you may be tempted to abandon God's plans for your life. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel crushed. Your emotions may be wounded more than you think you can bear. And your critics may engulf you with criticism. You may experience unrighteous or unjust behavior from those who should love you most. But the Bible says God will not allow us to be tested beyond what we are able. But with the testing, he will provide a way of escape that we might be able to endure it. The question is, is your faith real? Does it endure the harsh trials of life? The men and women God will use are those whose faith is tested, and that test causes them to come out as pure gold. Well, God has not abandoned his plans for David's life. So how does David's faith hold up during this 10-year period that we've called the death of a vision? I want to look at eight trials that David faced during this period of his life. And this will take us through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. So let's take a look, um, kind of a bird's eye view, 1 Samuel 22. Well, I'm going to turn this off altogether. 
If you, if you can't read, I'll read for you. Okay, so chapter 22. This is uh, down by the word preeminence. <laughs> is probably what is uh, the cave of Adullam. And in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, it says this, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. If you remember, we left David in um, uh, Gath. He, he uh, acted like a crazy man at the end of last week's sermon and uh, the, the king of, of, uh, of the Philistines wanted nothing to do with him. And so he fled and this is where he went or someplace very similar to this. Um, it says, And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Well, look who joined David. (laughs) This is what you really need if you're uh, being pursued, right? A whole bunch of misfits to come out with you to join you in your misery. Kind of sounds like the church, doesn't it? The Bible says not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble were called. But the Lord called us all the same. And He put us together. He placed us together. And it will be amazing to see over the next few chapters and then ultimately uh, in the future here in a few weeks, Charlie is going to give us a sermon on David's mighty men. And David's mighty men are these people. These are the people that went with David, a bunch of misfits, a bunch of discontented uh, debtors uh, who were in trouble themselves. And David is able to take them and to, to, to mold them and shape their character to such a degree through God's help that he uh, is able to, to call them at the end of his life his mighty men. And they do great exploits for the Lord. It'll prove to be a real test of David's character. What could he do with such a group of men? And he will have a profound impact. Let me ask you a question. What kind of an an impact are you having in the lives around you, in the lives of the saints here as well? Um, David composed at least two songs during this time, Psalm 142 and Psalm 57, possibly Psalm 56 as well. And we're not going to have time to look at each one of them individually, but I'll just bring some highlights out for you. It's interesting to me to see in David's life that he was the sweet um, songwriter in Israel, um, and he wrote psalms that reflected what was going on in his life. It's very interesting to me that in the time of the the, uh, crucible, we'll call it, the time when he is um, in the fire, some of the most beautiful songs that we have in Scripture come out during this time. But there is a time in David's life in the future where the music goes silent. And it's during a time of, of sin in his own life. But during this period of time when the heat is on, some, some remarkable psalms come from this. And we learn from these psalms that David was afraid because of his enemies were closing in. He sought refuge in men, but men failed him. He looked for some to have pity on him, to care for him, and there was no man. He was brought to tears because of the lies that were being spoken against him and the traps that they were setting to bring him down and the calamities that he was facing. And David is a man of faith. And he cries out to God and he finds his help in the Lord. 
And he learns that uh, in this trial, God is not only enough, he is everything. God is everything. And so this is what he says. Uh, He calms our fear. In Psalm 56, he says, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? This is coming out of uh, this period of time in his life. He is our refuge. Psalm 142 says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And in Psalm 57, he says this, For my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. He realizes God is compassionate. In Psalm 56, he says, You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? He realizes that it is God alone who protects him from his enemies. In Psalm 56, he says, When I cry to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. And that God will also fulfill his promises. Remember, this is a test of David's faith. God has promised him that he will be king. Well, he is suffering. He is fleeing. He's in a cave. And he's saying, has God forgotten his command? Has God forgotten his promise to me? Has God forgotten his plans for my life? David looked forward to the day when he would be king. The Bible says, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And this is what he says, bring out my soul out of bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. This is key to me. The righteous shall surround me for you shall deal bountifully with me. And in making that statement, David was making a statement in faith. That was not his current condition, but he's saying, the righteous shall surround me. You will deal bountifully with me. How does he know that? Because God has promised and God does not lie. That is faith. Taking God at his promises and believing on them and acting on them. Okay, so that's the first test, the cave of Adullam. The second is in the same chapter, and it is um, verses 3 and 4. It's a very interesting passage in the midst of his trial we'll just read it here it says then david went from there to mizpah of moab so on the chart here we have i've colored it and it looks like a real mess and that's because there was a lot of wanderings that went on but if you can follow over the the next um we're going to keep bringing this map up here but if you can follow this i've color coded it and so starting at the uh the blue well, in fact, the blue, then there's kind of a maroon color, then there's sort of a purplish color. So the third purple is where David goes from Gath to Adullam, that little right there. Yeah, okay? So the next thing is the yellow line. The yellow line, he, he leaves Adullam, and he, he goes all the way down and around over to Moab, stops in Moab, and comes all the way back up to the forest of Hereth, Okay? So why does he do that? Why does he, nobody's chasing him at the moment, but why does he do this? Let's read in verse 3. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. 
So what we have here is the second test, if you will, of David's character. And it's honoring his father and his mother. Honoring our parents has a prior claim on our lives than any problem we face, any overwhelming circumstances or trials. The Bible says this is the first commandment with a promise, that if you follow this, you will live long on the earth. And David, even as an adult, uh, he's in his 20s at this time, he honors his father and mother, realizing that it is not safe for them to be with him and to take them to a safe haven. Um, really, it is, a, it is a portion of... Um, it, is, it is the land of... Um, part, of part of his history. If you remember, um, um, Ruth came from, uh, from Moab, and so he took them back there. It was a safe place, a safe haven for them until the storm passed by, okay? So then he goes back up uh, to the forest of, of Hereth up there, or Horeth, Hereth it is actually. And uh, if you notice right on the right-hand corner of that little box, the yellow box up there, it says Bethlehem. And so this is a, an area, a territory, where David was already familiar. He was from Bethlehem, if you remember. And um, as he came back from taking his parents to Moab, he was met by the prophet Gad. And, and Gad warned him not to go back to Adullam, but to go instead to this forested area near Bethlehem. Saul learned at this time of David's position, and he was gathering intelligence about attacking him. When Saul learned that the priests um, had provided David with Goliath's sword and had fed him, he ordered his men to slaughter all the priests of God. And, his, and uh, Saul's men refused to do so. They said, no, we will not do this. And so Saul turned to a man named Doeg. Doeg was an Edomite. And he says, you take him out. And, he, and Doeg had no problem in taking a sword and, and killing 85 priests of God. No conscience whatsoever. And I'll tell you this, Saul had no conscience either. Uh, in, in commanding this in the first place. But Doeg wasn't satisfied with just killing the priests. He went and he slaughtered, uh, in the town where the priests were, he slaughtered the men, the women, the children, and even the nursing infants. He had no conscience, no regard for life whatsoever. Only one of the priests' sons named Abiathar escaped, and he came to where David was, and he told him, about Saul's murderous rampage. David realized that Saul had no conscience, and he knew ultimately that Saul was after him and would ultimately kill him. The warning couldn't have been any clearer. Now, let's take a look here at Samuel 22, verse 22. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. This last verse is also an answer of faith. He knew God as his, <clears throat> as his refuge, his rock, and his fortress. He said, you stay with me and we will be safe. How does he know that? Because God promised him that he would be king. And God will not lie. He will not fail 
his promises. The death of the priests was heartbreaking to David. But notice that even in heartbreak, David does not stop. David does not stop trusting God, and David does not give up. It was at this time he wrote Psalm 52. It is a psalm that speaks about the wicked actions of Doeg and others like him. But throughout the psalm, we see a quiet confidence that David has in God, that God will take the wrongs that have been committed, and he will be just, he will be righteous, and that he will lift up those who trust him, and he will cast down those that uh, go against him. Even in our deepest heartbreak, believers, we can trust in God. The next uh, is chapter 23. Um, He's betrayed, well, before we get there, he's in the forest of Hereth. To the left-hand side, the map, it's not clear, but there is a little town called uh, Keilah. And let me just read about this uh, section here. Chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? The point is this. He has this ragtag bunch of guys that are not trained in war. They're discontents themselves. And they've been moved out into the forest. They're living off the land in the forest. And they said, look, we're, we're afraid even here in the forest. Now you want us to go up against the Philistines? Don't you remember, David? They're our enemies. Don't you remember that? And so David had inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, yeah, go. Save the city. He tells his men, the Lord's commanding me to go. And they said, no, we're afraid. He said, well, look, I'll inquire of the Lord again. See if he wants you to go too. And so he inquires of the Lord again. And uh, the Lord answered him and said, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver you, or I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought, and the, the Philistines struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock, so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Wow, this is great. So they, they've entered this city, this poor city that is being uh, ripped off of all of their food and all of their livestock. He gains a victory for them. Now, this little town was actually a fortified city. It had walls around it. <clears throat> it had gates. And it uh, was a great place of protection. But it, the gates and the bars and the, and, the, and the walls didn't protect them from the, from the Philistines, did it? And so David and his men moved into the city. The people were happy and jubilant and what a great guy you are. We really love you, David. You know, you're our man. You know, rah, rah, rah. And uh, come, we'll, we'll feed you and we'll, we'll clothe you and we'll give you a place to sleep and all this sort of stuff. And then Saul hears that David is in this town. He says, this is great. Wow, it must be of the Lord. David is in the town. He's in the gated city. We're going to go up and we're going to besiege the city and we're going to take David and we're going to destroy him. Must be of the Lord, okay? And so he begins to go this way. David hears that he's coming and he does something that is is, uh, very important in David's life and that is he seeks the Lord. 
He says, Lord, what should I do? These people that love me so much here in this town, these people whom I have just saved, will they turn against me? The Lord says, yep. Is Saul going to come and is he going to kill me? Yep. And they're going to turn me over to him? Yes. And so he realized that it was time to flee. It was time to leave. And so he picked up his bag and he left. It must have hurt David. Can you imagine helping people like this? Took his 600 men and headed for the hills. And so Saul called off the attack. But we see in this story that David trusted in God to show him what he should do. It's possible that he wrote Psalm 25 at this time. And I thought maybe we could pause for a moment and sing the psalm. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my hope. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me next we come to the fifth test in his life or at this point in his life at least <clears throat> surrounded but not defeated it's first samuel 23 uh and uh verse 14 through 29 well we don't have time to go through it in great detail but after he fled from that the town Keilah. David went out to the wilderness of Ziph. Now, in uh, I think the New King James and maybe some of the other translations, it says the forest. Um, and uh, But it could be the town Horish. I don't know. Luke, can you go back to that uh, previous map? All right. If you look, I can hardly... Well, let me do this. Excuse me. I can... Right over there, there's a little town called Horish, which is at the bottom part of the wilderness of Ziph. That's probably where he was, not in a forest. Go back to the uh, the other map here. There we go. That's what it probably looked like. Okay, not much of a forest there. So, but the the word in the Hebrew actually is the same. Am I correct in that, uh, Noed? My deep study of uh, Hebrew, uh, Horish and forest are the same and and so it's probably the town horish that he went to uh this is where jonathan met up with david and uh it's the last time they met and jonathan reminded david of god's promise to him rick brought that out last week that here david is at a time of of great testing great discouragement no doubt trusting in the lord but it's just nice to have a brother come along and put his arm around him and say brother you know what? I know the plans that God has for you. They're not for calamity, but they're for a purpose and a hope. God hasn't forgotten his plans. Don't you forget them either. God is going to make you king. You know it. I know it. And even my father Saul knows it. You will be the king. Great encouragement at a time of great discouragement uh, in his life and wandering. Jonathan was keeping the vision alive even though David would still have to go through many more years of wandering. 
So these kind people of Ziph, the Ziphites, had David in their presence, and they thought, hmm, how can we get in with King Saul? How can we get on his good side? I know. Let's give David up to him. And so they go down and they, or they go to where Saul is and they say, look, Saul, we have David. And Saul says, yeah, but he's a very crafty young man. He knows how to hide. He knows how to, to avoid capture. You go get the intelligence that's needed. You find out his exact location. And when you do, then you come and tell me and I'll come after him. And so they did. They located where he was, and they told Saul, and Saul came. Now, if we can go back to that uh, map for just a minute here. Um, <clears throat> so the orange section is what we're looking at now. So the, the uh, top part up there, where it says the wilderness of Ziph, come down a little bit right there, that's where David was. When he heard that Saul was coming, he moved south to the wilderness of Maon, right in there, where that orange um, circular thing is, okay? And so Saul comes with a band of <clears throat> warriors, and he wants to take David out. Saul was hot on his trail. They positioned themselves in such a way that they encircled David. And so David and his men were trapped, and there was no way out. There was no possible avenue of escape at this time. And David was in a very desperate condition. He was facing certain death. If Saul had no conscience about taking the lives of 85 priests, he certainly had no conscience about taking David's life. David knew it, and he needed help, and he needed help in a hurry. It's possible that Psalm 31 was written at this time. I don't know if you've ever been in a desperate circumstance in your life. I think the more desperate the circumstance in life, the, um, the greater our dependence upon God. I think often in our prayer life, we have different positions of prayer. The position of prayer when things are going well is usually very erect, very upright. Lord, I thank you for all my blessings. When things are a little more difficult, I think sometimes we may bow our heads a little more. Lord, I do need help today. I really do. And then I think our position changes the more desperate the circumstances. And I think as we have seen this in the Scripture, we had a, we had a king in the Old Testament who got a letter and he was so desperate about the condition of, of being surrounded and being captured and being killed that he just got down on his face not on his knees but on his face before the Lord and he cried out to God all in, in a prone position and I believe that this is what David did here with Psalm 31 if you want to turn to it we'll read some of the passages in Psalm 30 or some of the verses in Psalm 31 and you'll see in this a desperation of, of uh, the, the circumstances and yet faith and trust in the Lord in it. Psalm 31. We're going to skip around a little bit um, and I'll try to tell you where we go. In verse 1 it says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. 
Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Verse 9. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eyes waste away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. They scheme to take away my life. Verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servants. Save me for your mercy's sake. Verse 22. For I said in my haste, I am cut off before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard my voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and he fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, take this book and use it. Use this book as your prayer, as your pleading uh, to the Lord. When you're overwhelmed, call out to the Lord. Let it give you the courage and the strength as you hope in the Lord. And what happened after David prayed? As I said, David was surrounded by his enemies. There was no way of escape. He thought he was a dead man. Verse 27 of chapter 20, uh, 1 Samuel 23, it says, But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hasten and come, and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. David cried out to the Lord, Lord, answer me speedily. And a messenger came and said to Saul, Hurry, the Philistines are attacking. You need to go and you need to go now. <laughs> the Lord answered. So En Gedi is up in uh, that green box area up there. So David goes up to uh, that spot up there for uh, cave dwelling again. The sixth test here has to do with loving those who do not love us. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. We started today with a song that asked the question, Who am I? And answered the question, I am yours. Jesus taught that we show whose family we really belong to, not by how we treat our friends, but how we treat those who spitefully use us and persecute us. How do we treat those who have mistreated us? How do you respond when someone has stomped all over your heart? 
How do you uh, respond to those who have maligned you? How do you respond to those who falsely accuse you? Or to those who persecute you? To retaliate is natural. To love is supernatural. But when that kind of love is expressed, it shows whose child I am. Whose child am I? Whose child are you? David demonstrated who he was by this next story. Saul <clears throat> arrived at En Gedi with 3,000 soldiers. David and his men were hiding in a cave, and of all places to go, they, uh, Saul decides to enter the very cave in which David is hiding with his men, hundreds of them. It's a big cave. And they're, I'm sure, all lined up against the wall. <laughs> and as he comes in the cave, of course, it's as black as midnight, but they can see him coming in because the light is at the entrance of the cave. And they see Saul coming into the cave to relieve himself. And they're going, whoa, <laughs> happy days are here at last. And they whisper to David, hey, David, it's your enemy, Saul. God has delivered him. You can kill him now, okay? What is David going to do with these hundreds of men that he has? All, say, get him, get him, get him. Shh. <laughs> get him. This is what they say. This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, and you may do to him as seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Not because he had killed him, but just because he had cut his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. After Saul left the cave, made some distance from the cave, David came out and said, Saul, it's me, David. I had you. I could have killed you. And I didn't. Why have you come after me? Like a par partridge. Why have you come after me? I'm nothing. Why are you chasing me like this? I have not hurt you or harmed you. And Saul realized that in fact this is probably one of Saul's clearest moments in his life and he says this to David then he said to David you are more righteous than I yeah you figure <laughs> for you have rewarded me with good whereas I have rewarded you with evil and you have shown this day how you have dealt with well with me for when the Lord delivered me into your hand you did not kill me for Listen to what he says. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. A couple of chapters later, almost the exact same circumstances take place. David has an opportunity to kill Saul again. 
Saul is asleep. His army generals who are surrounding him, trying to protect him, or should be protecting him, are also asleep. David goes in with some men. They could have killed Saul, but instead he just takes a few items from Saul's, uh, that were surrounding Saul. And again, he calls out to Saul and says, Saul, I could have done it again, but I didn't. It's at this time that Saul finally gives up the chase. Now, that's a couple chapters later. There's one more uh, incident here that, that I want to take a look at. Number seven, another test in, in, in his uh, life here is discouragement. And in chapter 25, I just want to say this, brothers and sisters, discouragement can lead to sin. The chapter opens with Samuel's death. That, no doubt, would be greatly discouraging to David. David was being hunted like a partridge. That had to be discouraging. David and his men had been in the uh, territory of uh, Maon. And in that territory, there's a town called Carmel. Not Carmel by the sea. This is Carmel by the forest. Okay? And in Carmel... Uh, there was a very rich man in that region, and he had a lot of money, and he had a lot of servants. He had um, 3,000 sheep. He had 1,000 goats. And he seemed to be constantly and continuously consumed with the idea of getting richer and richer and richer, and getting more. His name was Nabal. Nabal means fool, and that's what he was. He was a fool. I can't help wonder if this is who Jesus referred to or who Jesus had in mind when he told the story of the rich man who wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger barns and say to his soul, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. But the Lord said to him, you fool, for this night your soul shall be required of you. And so is a person who pursues things in this life and is not rich towards God. While David and his men were keeping their distance from Saul, they settled in this area of Carmel. And just by the very fact that they were in the, in the territory, uh, as the, the Philistines came to attack, and they would have attacked Nabal and his, and his household because they had a lot. But David wandered through the, the forested area. And if you want to look at the next picture too, Luke, this is um, more of the same territory. As as um, the Philistines came to take either the crops or the, or the livestock, David protected Nabal's men. And so David heard that Nabal was out shearing his sheep one day in the, in the field, and he sent ten of his men to ask him for provisions, food and drink. That's it. Just give us something that we might eat. Give us something that we might drink. It's not a great command. And Nabal basically responded by saying, in fact, David said to his men, go in my name and ask for this. And so they do. And Nabal's answer is kind of like, David who? David who? And uh, he, was, he was cruel to them. He was um, uh, a man who um, infuriated David basically by his response. Here he had given and protected and had cared for this man and for all of his possessions. Was it really too much to ask for some food and water? And Nabal would have none of it. I will not give him anything. 
And so David was so infuriated by this man. He, he had a reputation, the, the, Nabal had a reputation in the area of being a wicked man. He was called a son of Belial, which means a very wicked man. He was a drunkard as well. Um, and, but he was unwilling to share even the least of what he had with David. And so when David heard this, he says, put on your sword. Let's go. We're going to take this guy out. Okay. Discouragement. That's what David was in at this point, And it can lead to sin. And this would have been a sin in David's life to have taken out uh, this man. It was a murderous intention of his heart. Had it not been for Nabal's intelligent wife, Abigail, David and his men would have killed him and all his men that day. But God intervened using Abigail to intercede for her husband and his workers. And her humility and her generosity prevented David from continuing on this murder, uh, committing a murderous crime and having that on his conscience as king. She protected her own husband by doing this. The point I want to make here, though, is this. Believers, be especially careful, be especially watchful during times of discouragement in your life. Discouragement can lead to sin. It can lead to selfish behavior. It can lead to ignoring God's warnings in our life. Be careful. Be watchful during times of discouragement. Finally, <clears throat> we're going to look at um, very quickly that the darkest hour, this is another lesson I think we need to learn as believers here, the darkest hour is often right before the dawn. David had another year, year and a half to go before he would be king. So take a look at the map again here. After leaving Carmel, David uh, went back to Gath. Now, there was another episode with Saul, as I mentioned. He could have taken Saul out again. We, we skipped over that. But after that event, David said, you know what? I, I just can't take it anymore. And he goes to Gath. Gath is the headquarters of the Philistines. So he's going to his enemy um, for, for refuge. So had it not been for God's intervention here, David was going to fight with the Philistines against his own people. But God intervened. And, and uh, the generals basically said, look, we don't want David here. Remember that song we heard on the radio? They kept playing over and over again. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, this guy here, has slain his tens of thousands. Remember that? Don't you see that sword on his side there? That's Goliath. Remember Goliath was our hero? I don't think it's a good idea having him with us, okay? And so the king relented and said, oh, what's wrong with him? You know? All right, we'll give him a city. So they sent him down to Ziklag, and they live in Ziklag with his, with his men. The Lord used that as an opportunity for David to do a lot of mop-up operations. He would go out from Ziklag and he would go out into the territory in the south here and he would destroy the enemies of the Lord. And in doing so, he wouldn't leave anybody left, no women, no children, no men, so that no one could go back and report that he was fighting uh, for the Israelites. But there was one final test here of his character. One day his men... He and his men were fighting a battle and they left the town and they went out to fight and when they came back they saw the smoke of the city uh, in the, in the uh, foreground 
And as they got closer, they realized that the city was burning to the ground. And all that they owned, all that they had, was destroyed in the fire as far as the housing and things like that. And their wives and their children and all of their possessions had been taken from them and had been taken uh, down uh, to the Amalekites. And uh, the men and David sat down on the ground and they wept and they wept and they wept until there were no tears left. If that were the end of the story, that would be sad enough. But then the men, David's mighty men, that ragtag bunch that he's had now for nearly 10 years, said, you know what? You're to blame for this, David. Had it not been for you, we wouldn't have been doing all this wandering. We wouldn't have been doing this. We, would, we didn't even have to go out today to destroy these people, but you wanted to, and you made us go out, and all this sort of stuff. And they turned against David, and they were going to pick up stones to stone him. And it was at this time that David came back, in a sense, to the Lord. And he said, uh, this is what happened. It says in um, chapter 30, verse 6, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He once again, at this point in his life, sought God's direction. What should I do now? What's the next step? And the Lord told him to go and pursue his enemies and he would recover all that was lost. And that is precisely what happened. The death of the vision is almost over. And soon it, that vision would be resurrected and David would be king. Because at the same time, way north in Israel, Saul and his sons are on Mount Gilboa and they're fighting a battle too. And it is in that battle that uh, Saul's sons are killed. Saul is injured and then he commits suicide by falling on his sword. And... God's promise to David would finally be fulfilled. Moses went right up to the Red Sea with the children of Israel, with Pharaoh in hot pursuit behind him. And it seemed like it was the darkest night. But it really was one of the greatest miracles of the Lord when he said to Moses, put out your rod and the sea parted and they went through on dry land. And all the enemies of the Lord were destroyed. Joseph was arrested and put in prison and forgotten by an ungrateful servant. But just when it seemed hopeless, God took him out of prison and set him as second in command over all of Egypt. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good to save many people alive. To the disciples watching the crucifixion, all must have seemed loss. But that was because it was Friday. But Sunday was coming. The resurrection was soon to take place. And to David, the darkest event of the 10-year trial came right before his exaltation or his, uh, to the uh, throne. Believer, God has a plan for your life that you should walk in it. You cannot, if you cannot see clearly, trust him. David said this in Psalm 27, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. God has a plan for your life, in this life, but he has a plan for your future as well, and that includes a home in heaven, to see him face to face, to be with him for all eternity. 
David was right on the verge of reigning as king. God has made a promise to each one of us as believers. The promise of his coming is always presented before believers as a hope, a sure expectation, something that is going to take place. Jesus is coming again. And we will soon be done with the same things that David had to face here too. The veil of tears, trials, difficulties, persecution, whatever it is that we face in life, it's all going to be gone. One day there will be, (laughs) I can hardly say it without tears, (laughs) but no more tears. If you have the patience, I'd like to play a song for you. I'm not singing it, and you can be thankful to the Lord. for A man named David Phelps sings a song about our future and our hope, the place where we will be in heaven with the Lord, where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more death. So we'll we'll, uh, conclude with this and just ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we just pray that as believers that we would face difficulties with faith and not fear, And Lord, that you would keep before us ever the the promise of your coming, the promise that we will one day be with you and be like you. We will reign with you. Lord, we look forward to that day. And we pray that, Lord, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I ask in your name. Amen.